Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, August 31st starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back legal mind extraordinaire and poker player, Brendan Schiller. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink. You know the drill. Get to ChicagoReader.com. And you want more Ben Jarofsky? Just head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's pretty easy. I'll spell it for you. J-O-R-A-V is in victory. S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Attractive Nuisance. Thursday, and here's why. My distinguished guest, Brendan Schiller, standing by, knows what I'm about to do. I'm going to open up with a few, a few remarks about the lawsuit filed by the city of Chicago, Mayor Brandon Johnson, against Kia and Hyundai uh, in an effort to deal with uh, carjackings in the city of Chicago. And this this, this lawsuit, I, it, it was filed. I don't know where I was. I was, wasn't paying attention when the story hit. Uh, and subsequently, I've been getting the reaction. So usually I'm there when the story hits and then I follow the reaction. I'm part of the reaction, but now I'm getting a reaction. Everybody's ripping it. Brendan Schiller, Fox TV, making fun of Brandon Johnson. By the way, I have dyslexia. Brendan Schiller is my guest. Brandon Johnson is the mayor of the city of Chicago. I apologize, Brendan, up front if I call you Brandon during this show. I humbly apologize. Mayor Johnson, uh, when you show up Tuesday at, at the promontory for first Tuesday, I apologize for calling you Brendan, okay? Uh, if that were to happen, it's dyslexia, folks. It's no joke. Anyway, there was a, a, what triggered it to, this morning was a letter um, to the editor of the Chicago Sun-Times. I'm showing uh, Brendan my letter. Uh, Blame bad guys, not automakers for car thefts. And here's the headline. Let me get this straight. Mayor Brandon Johnson is suing Kia and Hyundai for making it easier for bad guys to be bad guys. Got it. It's written by a man, uh, Paul in Orland Park. And so, you know, he was like being facetious. You could tell Paul in Orland Park. Uh, but I don't know. You know, I, I went back and I read Tommy Shuba's article. Shout out Tom Shuba, a uh, sometimes reporter. Uh, and I thought about it. And uh, one of the key takeaways, according to the lawsuit filed by uh, uh, the city of Chicago, is that uh, Kia and Hyundai have failed to install basic anti-theft prevention technology in their cars, and it's sheer negligence. Uh, the lawsuit goes on to cite something that blew my mind. That's the sound of my mind being blown this morning. No, no joke there, ladies and gentlemen. Quote, vehicles manufactured by the two companies accounted for 41% of the city's 21,425 thefts last year, but made up just 7% of the cars on the road. That's according to Tom Shuba's article in the Sun-Times. I'll repeat that for you guys. Vehicles manufactured by these two companies accounted for 41% of the city's 21,425 thefts, 41%. So you're telling me that if you install this device to protect from uh, carjackings, you can reduce by, I don't know, 40% the number of carjackings in the city or significantly cut the number of carjackings in the city or car thefts in the city, I should say. You wouldn't do it. Uh, and uh, I'm no lawyer, but when I read this article, it like I remember hearing this phrase, attractive nuisance. And uh, so I went back and I looked it up uh, on the Internet. And sure enough, there is a legal doctrine, attractive nuisance. Uh, and it generally means like when you do something that attracts children or your negligence attracts children to 
something that hurts them. And then they get hurt and then they sue you. That's like a, a legal concept. So in this case, the argument is that Kia, by not installing this device, is attracting thieves because thieves know they can steal these cars. So if you force them to install those devices, the number of people attracted to steal those cars would go down. I think they're kind of a logical, uh, it's a logical assumption to make. I talk about it all the time with lawsuits against the manufacturers of weaponry. Like if you could sue a gun manufacturer because his product causes carnage, maybe the gun manufacturers would be what? More careful about how they market their guns, who they sell their guns to, who buys their guns. You know, maybe we could move toward keeping guns out of the hands of people who will do nothing but bad with them. It it seems logical to me. I don't think it's that illogical. And yet, of course, <laughs> Mayor Brandon Johnson is getting reamed for this one. Look, guys, I say criticize Mayor Brandon Johnson when he does something that is really illogical makes no sense brendan's children's gonna smile when he hears what comes out of my mouth so if, if he sends out a tweet showing him with uh mayor uh emmanuel and he says great job mayor emmanuel for your continued leadership criticize him for that okay if he takes three months to fire allison or wadi <laughs> criticize him for that but don't criticize him for trying to force kia and hyundai to protect their cars better Take away this attractive nuisance. All right, that's my thoughts on that subject. I turn things over to the distinguished attorney who's uh, out in Vegas taking a little break from playing cards. Dear friend of this show, Brendan Schiller. Brendan, before I get to the topics on hand to discuss, do you have any thoughts about my opening uh, recitation? I have a transition from based on that. So the reason I was familiar with the Kia and Hyundai issue prior to the lawsuit was uh, there's a woman in my life who I consider my movement sister named Sarah Atkins, who was trying to, after her father died, sell her car and get a new car. And the resale value on the Hyundai was um, several thousand dollars less than it should have been because of this exact issue, which is known nationally. Hyundai and, and Kia do not have um, the either the tracking or the device that automatically turns it off for 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 remote uh, keys, I'm not sure exactly the technology. And so in, 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 I was aware of this because in, in April and in, in May, in March and April, after her father, George Atkins passed, Sarah was trying to get a new car and she wasn't getting the proper value because it was nationally known that these cars were, uh, were susceptible to theft. I, I think there's another relation to a conversation we're gonna have later. Um, I, I feel for, the city and Brandon Johnson because um, policing uh, never polices themselves or people of power. And so if there's things that big corporate entities do that cause harm, the police don't respond to it. So sometimes you have to take civil action. I have a little concern about this civil action, not the concern that was expressed by by the, the letter to the editor you just read, because I think there's some implicit racism in that letter that you just read. I think my concern is, is you're stretching liability in various ways. And I've always disliked how the city has gone after small homeowners if some of their tenants happen to be uh, involved in drugs or the way the city has gone after small homeowners through the buildings department for, for violations that were tangential or tenuous from their actual ownership. And so I always have concerns about the city stretching, using civil action to stretch civil liability, but I'm not familiar enough with this particular case to discuss it. Well, uh, fair enough. I appreciate when a guest says, hey, I don't know, so don't ask me. Uh, <laughs> the problem is when guests start uh, launching into explanations, things they don't know, uh, then oops, uh, we realize that uh, we're in over our heads. All right, uh, I um, I'll put this aside for the moment. But you really left me curious. Uh, in, what did what was the implicit racism? Let's spell it out a little bit uh, in the letter to the the editor. 
Well, so whenever any time a, a letter to the editors is about uh, focus on the actual criminals, I think what they're really saying is focus on poor black and brown people who do street level crime and don't focus on the greater harm that's often done by people with money or people with power or corporations. Um, so, you know, people love to talk about street level thefts because those are people in need. Um, but retail theft in this country, even though it's been such a big thing, um, in terms of actual harm and actual dollars and actual damage is about one fourth of corporate theft, um, which occurred of, of corporate theft of uh, wage theft. Um, and so the harm is much greater corporate wage theft, but that's never policed by policing. That's sometimes policed by AGs or, or civil cases. But people really want to make sure there's a large portion of folks who really want to make sure that black and brown folks on the street are policed to the death for for 100 or 200 or 600 dollars and and what we've seen frankly not to go down the standard too much but what we've seen over the last four or five years is outright lying from corporations about how much they're losing a shrinkage or loss or theft in order to justify two things in order to justify over their they're spending on political money for over policing in certain cities to force over policing and in order to justify their price gouging, which has resulted in record profits. And it's really a values thing and not an economic decision. So when CVS and Walgreens and Target, they put out this image that there's massive theft in the community, when in reality their shrinkage and theft has consistently gone down the last several years, um, that's a values thing. And that's that's white supremacy nationally. And when people write letters to the air, it says, focus on what's happening on the street, not the larger contributing factors. Uh, in the way that criminality may be supported by corporations, to me, that's just implicit racism. All right. Uh, and uh, I will um, resist the temptation to uh, ask further follow-up questions because there's more I want to get into. I agree with a lot of what you said. Uh, I, I didn't, yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said. We'll leave it at that because there's other stuff I want to get into, uh, ladies and gentlemen. So before today's show, I'm going to put the agenda out. Before today's show is done, we're going to talk about the White Sox shooting. Uh, Brendan Schiller has a very interesting uh, take on that. Uh, and we're going to talk about Donald Trump's uh, criminal defense sort of strategy. Uh, Brendan's got some interesting thoughts about that. Remember, he is a defense attorney. But you mentioned a friend of yours, Sarah Atkins, daughter of George Atkins. So I want to talk about George Atkins for a while to start with. George Atkins died about, what was it, several months ago? He was a political, February, February political strategist uh, uh, based in Uptown for many years. I did not know George. I have to say this. I told Brendan this on the phone. I just knew who he was. I don't think we ever met. But I was stunned uh, when I heard that the turnout for his memorial service not only brought in activists from the left, which I always thought of uh, – George Atkins, a person from the left, but mainstream politicians, Bobby Rush, J.B. Pritzker, and Michael Joseph Madigan. That blew my mind, Brendan Schiller. Michael Madigan, came, he came out of hiding to come to this. I realized this dude had a legacy that went far beyond anything I knew uh, about George Atkins or the role he played in the city of Chicago. And you're a longtime friend of him. You know the family well. You spoke at the memorial service. I just feel it's important just to uh, take some moment to reflect on uh, the legacy of George Atkins and the life of George Atkins. So why don't you uh, just introduce folks a little bit with some basics about who he uh, was. Go ahead. Yeah, so actually at the memorial, I, I basically – told I said it was six and a half memories. Um, and so that, that took about 10, 15 minutes. I, I think if it's okay with you, I want to tell basically four and a half of those memories here. Okay. Um, so if I could, it'll, it'll probably take six or seven minutes. Um, I had told you, and for people who thoroughly read my mother's book, you know, I spent seven of the first, I spent basically from the year one and a half to, to seven and a half in a collective, in a commune with a bunch of kids. And when I came out of that, then they were raised by all these these 30 or 40 lefty activists, some of whom are good friends of yours, like Curly Cohen and Mark Kaplan, and one of them, both of whom were my parents, uh, Helen Schiller and, and, and Mark Zalkin. And when we came out of that, there was a six-month period where George was actually our roommate. So it was me, my mother, a woman named Jerry Reed, and George, and we were all roommates. And 
It was the in the summer of 79. It was a really hot summer. I'm eight years old. We're in one of those really long uptown apartments with like a hundred foot hallway and bedrooms off to the side that maybe previously had been chopped up. And it's just me and George. And it's in the afternoon. We're probably watching the Cubs game right after school or something. And I see a moth and it's in the back dining room by the kitchen. And so I grab the fly swatter to go after the moth. And George says, I'll handle that. He grabs the fly swatter from me. He follows the moth around so it lands on a windowsill. He goes and he slams down the, the fly swatter on the moth and swoosh, there's a whole bunch of fly from a fly nest flying up in the air. So I'm eight years old, so I'm scared. So I turn around and run all the way down the hallway. Halfway down the hallway, I look up and there's George running faster than me down the end of the hallway. Um, and <laughs> then he gets to the end of the hallway and he says, hey, we don't have to tell anybody about this. And the point of my story, of that story at the memorial was George, more than anybody who was in my life, had the courage to embody and animate vulnerability. And this was long before vulnerability was a thing in national pop psychology. George, throughout his life, had the courage to be honest about who he was and be vulnerable about who he was with a wide swath of people encouraging them and modeling that trait, which is a really important trait. It's, 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 it's vital to empathy, it's vital to honesty, it's vital to connection. Um, and, and I learned that from George and George modeled that throughout his activism in Chicago. And the, the next memory I told was about two and a half years after that, during the 1983 election. In the 1983 election, when Harold Washington was running for mayor, my father in the, in the primary was coordinating the Northwest side for him. My mother was coordinating the North Lakefront for Harold Washington. And George was coordinating the 46th Ward for an alderman candidate who didn't win along with Harold Washington. And, and for those who don't remember, don't know, the 46th Ward was the only North Lakefront Ward. North Lakefront was different then. The 46th Ward was the only majority white ward that voted for Harold Washington in 1983 because of all the work of those activists in the, in the general, not in the, in the primary. Mm -hmm. um, the, during that campaign, there was a member, there was two members of the collective, um, one of who was the biggest, strongest, roughest, meanest member, who was also a drunk, who happened to be in an abusive relationship with one of the women who was in the collective. And there was a night during that campaign when there was 30 or 40 people volunteered and that mean, tall, rough dude was drunk out of his mind and showed up to the campaign office with with kill kill in his in his eyes blood literal blood on his hands and when he showed up everybody froze except for george and george walked up to him the tension was thick this guy had the ability to take george's head off and walk away within three seconds and george said something and i don't know what he said but this guy laughed and over a 10 to 15 minute period george calmed him down with humor and rationality and love and the courage to be calm and honest and eventually moved him out of the office. This was somebody, if George wasn't there, who would have killed somebody. This was like pre-2000s mass murder shooting. This is the type of thing that would have happened with his hands and with knives, except George somehow de-escalated with humor. He had the courage to be calm and he understood the power of humor. And about it was, and right after that campaign, George went and worked with my father on the Northwest side and coordinated the Northwest side. Mean, nasty. I went to the campaign office a couple of times. There was graffiti. People would spit on you. The, the, the Northwest side back then was not supportive of Harold Washington. But George and, and my father worked 18 and 20 hours a day. And it was during that period that my father with his multiple sclerosis went from walking on a cane to essentially in a wheelchair. And about two years after that, while he was still working for the mayor as assistant press secretary, he developed massive bed sores all over his body because he wasn't moving. And when we found the bed sores, George, having the courage to show love, the courage to be love, moved in with Mark and lived with him for about four to five months, taking nursing him and taking care of those bed sores until my mother could find a nurse to get the insurance worked out so he could have a full-time nurse. And um, the level of, of love and care and responsibility that was embodied by that activity um, is something that I'll never forget. And again, is modeled uh, in a way that I've never seen anybody else model. And then about two and a half years after that, and here's where we get to the one and the final four and a half story 
I'm a, the other two don't matter. About a year and a half or two and a half years after that, I was a high school dropout. I'm now 17 years old. I'm working at Justice Graphics, been working there for a year in the dark room. And I asked to, to write uh, for the newspaper that they were still doing. It was kind of dying, all Chicago City News. Um, or I may have been, it was 17 or 18. We're, we're like in the spring, summer of, of 1989. And George gives me an assignment after, you know, working out, helping me with my writing. I go, I talk to, meet with Stan Willis, Bob Starks, Conrad Whirl, and Pat Hill at San Fernando City Studies. And they have two documents. One is a police report that Pat Hill got. That's basically two sentences that says a guy named Lawrence Mayfield accidentally walked into an elevator shaft at 11th and State, fell down the elevator shaft and died. The other is an autopsy report that says he died from bruising and trauma all over his head, but there's no bruises or broken bones anywhere else in his body. So Stan, Pat, Conrad, and Bob all look at me and say, this is illogical. They beat this man to death. If he had fell down the elevator shaft, he'd have broken bones, there'd be other bruising, but that's all they had. They didn't even have a client, right? Stan didn't have a client. Stan wanted to sue, but he had, they had this police report that Pat had obviously gotten from a fellow cop and they had this autopsy report that was completely inconsistent. I go back and I talk to George and I say, George, this is what they got, but I don't know if this is enough for a story. And George says, oh, wait. So you talk to Pat Hill, to Stan Willis, to Conrad Whirl, and to Bob Stark. So you talk to a civil rights attorney, a cop, Two, uh, two professors on, on uh, black sociology, you talk to four community activists, you talk to an inside source at the police department, you talk to th uh, three people with vast knowledge on, on police and community relations, you talk to somebody who's an expert on police use of force. It sounds like uh, you talk to more than enough people to put together a story. And so by the time I was done, I quoted all four of them plus 27 unnamed sources. And we had a front page story on the death of Lawrence Mayfield was my first front page story. Um, so, you know, it was, it was meant to be funny and I got laughs, but really what George helped me find is, is in large part my purpose with that experience and how to get to the, to the truth, even when the powers that be won't let you get there. The half of that, though, is that over the next three or four years, I wasn't the only one who came and worked at Justice Graphics. Mm -hmm. There were people in Uptown like... Um, well, the Karen Sandler, the Karen Zapper was already working there. There were people like Jason Yolich and, and Jimmy Spurgeon. And everybody who came there from the late 80s through the early 90s through the mid-90s, he encouraged them to be teachers. And he said, he said, you know, we messed up 20 years ago. We thought we were revolutionaries. We should have been teachers. And over the course of the next several years, what happened was Karen Zapper left, well, Anton Miglietta and Jason Yolich formed rise and shine at Stockton School, which eventually became Youth and Youth, Youth on Youth in conjunction with John Yolich and Tone Taylor and, and B. Ng and Choi Ng, and that, it, uh, and that spread out forever. And then Jacinda Hall and Jaquanda um, and Leda all formed Kumba Links. And then Karen Zakor left Justice Graphics and she joined with, with John and Chor and they formed what eventually became Uplift Community High School. And to this day, over a course of about 15 year period, Uptown produced 40 people who are either public school or alternative school teachers. There's a, they, they obviously still have Uplift Community High School. There's a phalanx of them at Clinton um, and they're spread throughout the city. And he spurred a movement out of Uptown of people spending decades mm -hmm. teaching. And, and I, it's an untold story. And it, and it happened because he had the courage to identify um, people's passion and purpose and help them learn it. And then this wasn't a story I told um, at the service, but relevant for now and for the transition. By the late 90s, he decided his passion and purpose was to be with his family. Him and Ann adopted two, two more people in addition to their biological a daughter, they raised three daughters and they raised, and one of those daughters when they adopted was a very young teenage mother. So they essentially raised their grandson as well. Um, and, and they realized, and George realized at some point he wanted to get out of the city. And so he moved to West Virginia in 2011, but prior to doing that, he spent about 10 years being a political consultant for everybody, not just the left. 
And he developed deep relationships with people, including Madigan and Pritzker and others. One point going back, just so I don't miss it. Mm -hmm. The reason he ended up in Chicago was because him and his movement brother, James Ratner, knocked on the door in St. Louis of the Black Panther Party in the late 60s. And Bobby Rush went down to St. Louis in the late 60s, early 70s, specifically to recruit George Atkins and James Ratner to come be part of the uh, movement in Chicago. Wow, that's what is he from St. Louis? Was he from St. Louis originally, George Atkins? So George Atkins and, and James Ratner actually met up in Michigan uh, in school. And then when they got kicked out in their sophomore year, moved to Missouri, I think, to try to grow weed on a weed farm. And when that failed, <laughs> I understand is they knocked on the door of the St. Louis Black Panther Party to be part of the revolution. And when 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 George, the way George told the story, when Bobby Rush came down like in 1970 and said, why don't you come up to Chicago? George was like, well, how long do you think before the revolution happens? And Bobby Rush said, about two years. And George said, okay, I can last that long. Oh, that's hilarious. The revolution, oh, a couple of two years, give or take a month or two. It should be 1972, it'll arrive. Oh, man, that's a great riff. So just as a background for folks uh, who probably got the spirit of the riff but didn't know the particulars, uh, <laughs> the, the the father in question, the great, the legendary, in my humble opinion, Mark Zalkin, a little shout-out to Mark as long as we're going out. That's uh, Brendan's father that he alluded to. Uh, one of the first people I met, Brendan, when I moved to Chicago uh, in 1981. I met your dad. Uh, and uh, what a f- that that dude had a wicked sense of humor, ladies and gentlemen. If he were alive, he would be a regular guest on this show, making fun of everybody because he had just this like it's hard to explain the Mark Zalkin sense of humor, but it was like this devilish sense of humor, very wry. Uh, he used to crack me up all the time. Um, and uh, but so there was this cohort that uh, uh, Brendan uh, is alluding to of politicos in the uptown area on the north side of Chicago that built an organization. And they started off, you're, you're right, they were revolutionaries, they were thinking global, I guess, and then they got very local. Uh, and they did what a lot of 70s or 60s revolutionaries never did. They built something. Um, and uh, as opposed to just, you know, momentarily being radical while you're dodging the draft, and then as soon as the draft's over, you go vote for Reagan. They actually built something. And that thing they built, that organization they built, uh, elected Helen Schiller, Brendan's mom, for many, many years. And I would say it had a huge role all these years later in Angela Clay's victory in the last go around. Uh, it was, they were the activists who Brendan just pointed out, knocked on doors for Harold Washington. So George Atkins was very much a part of that uh, organization and um, as a behind the scenes strategist. Brendan, I didn't ever, I don't think I ever saw him quoted that much in the newspapers. I don't think it was one of like, I don't think I saw him on the TV talk shows. He, it wasn't like David Axelrod took his years as a strategist and turned it into a, um, a corporate career. This guy stayed as a strategist, as far as I could tell. Uh, and his reputation was such his ability to count votes and understand the game of politics and win close elections was such that J.B. Pritzker turned to him uh, in, what was it, 1996 or 98, when Sidney Yates had stepped out as congressman uh, in the 9th Congressional District. There was a vacancy, and a very young J.B. Pritzker ran for office. A lot of you may not notice J.B. Pritzker ran for Congress on uh, on the north side, the north side district, and lost to Jan Schakowsky. Uh, in the, the uh, primary, but that blew my mind right there. That's when I realized that uh, there was that your crew, not yours, really. You were the, the kid, but was a lot more practical, uh, Brendan, than I ever thought. Do you follow what I'm saying? Like that J.B. Pritzker would turn to George Atkins when, when was it, 1998, whenever that was, 96, uh, 98, and to run his campaign I just thought of Pritzker as, you know, the son of the Pritzkers. You know what I'm saying? I didn't think him was a lefty. He's not. A, I mean, he wasn't then. You know, I, I didn't think of him as I, the word progressive wasn't even around. At best, he was a liberal. Uh, but obviously, 
the George Atkins of the world, a reputation had come to the point where people who may have been on the other side in those early struggles were now seeking them out. Yeah. So I don't know if it's a mythology or if it's real or if it's part of both, but you know, the mythology amongst my people is that Mark Zalkin and George Atkins really figured out new and innovative ways to analyze precinct level data and to beat the machine at its own game using uh, door-to-door activism and organizers. And really in many ways, the things that they were doing with poll sheets and spread and handmade spreadsheets um, were the, were the, predecessors to the van and to all of the high fluent technology technological stuff that Obama brought in, in in the early 2000s and that that they really set the tone and 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 so it's got to be a little bit more than just mythology because machine operatives um around the city believed it too and believed that that George and, and Mark had a special sauce that nobody else had. And then obviously, you know, my dad um, essentially uh, get, was was out of the game because he was essentially just crippled uh, from the, if that's the right word, I don't know if the right word is, but it was disabled from the mid eighties on um, and then and then passed in 98, but George continued it. And so yes, the reputation spread throughout the city. And then yes, that was another part of the speech I didn't get into, but George and, and, and my mother and Mark and everybody, they were viewed as these radical lefties, but all they wanted to do was solve problems and help people. And so from that perspective, if you could solve a problem and help people, it didn't matter what who you worked with. It wasn't about staking a position. It was about solving problems. And when George met with JB, um, he saw somebody who wanted to solve problems. And, and I think JB has kind of validated that as governor, that he's actually a guy who wants to solve problems. Oh, JB has come a long way. JB, like I'm his pal. Uh, JB. Uh, <laughs> JB has come a long way since 1998. Okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's come a long way since 1998. And um, I just figured, look, uh, as a guy on the outside looking in, I just thought it was a pragmatic deal. Uh, Pritzker had money. Uh, George Atkins had skills. Pritzker needed Atkins, and Atkins could use a little what Pritzker had. I just thought it was a very pragmatic deal. I'm not hating on the pragmatic. There are some diehard lefties who just think that you should never be pragmatic. You should just always be broke. <laughs> You know, you should never ever have anything. And I'm like, I do not understand that point of view at all, Brendan Schiller. I like to go yeah. on vacation. I like to go lie on a beach. I love yeah. going to the Bulls games. I'm not going to wear, I'm not going to, I don't believe I should be in poverty because I have lefty ideals. Yeah, you know who? I never subscribed to that, go. You know who crystallized that point to me more than 30 years ago it was actually my wife. She's still my wife, even though we've been separated for a very, very long time. Her name's Brenda Schiller. It's like 30 years ago. And she said, you know, I don't want anybody to be broke, but I want everybody to have money. I want everybody to be happy. And so if I want everybody to be happy and have their value and have, have their labor and wage and, and all that be valued, why would I want my time and labor and wage to be valued? It's silly. And, and it's silly both when the left attack it and when the right attack it. I hear that attack from the right, oh, you're being hypocritical. How am I being hypocritical? My point is everybody should have the full value of their time and labor and thought and skill, then I should have the full value of my time, labor, thought and skill as well. Yeah, I, no, the, the right, that, okay. <laughs> I once went out for lunch uh, with uh, three people of the, um, I'm not gonna name their names, uh, three people of the neoliberal, to put it mildly, persuasion, okay? Uh, and I asked the waitress what the special was, and they all started making fun of me. Oh, <laughs> Mr. Man of the People wants to know what the special was. I, I, they thought that was so funny that I, I mean, I, I don't know what they expected I would eat. You get what I'm saying? Like, I don't know what... As a lefty, I'm supposed to eat to reflect my lefty values, just like raw potatoes or something. I, uh, but this was their attempt to be funny. And, uh, you know, so I was exposed, this is during the ROM years, to a lot of, of 
what they consider this this humor. So like they they likened Karen Lewis to Joseph Stalin, for instance. They thought this was really funny. This was this is like Rom type humor. You get what I'm saying? And later on, the lefties, the young lefties told me that's called neoliberals, man. These are neoliberals. I didn't even know what that phrase was. I'm still not quite sure I know what the phrase is. Uh, to, to me, they were just Clintonian Democrats. I've been dealing with this type uh, since the 70s, really. Uh, so, yeah, I um, this is just a way people avoid the central contradictions uh, in our world today by maligning and making fun of people who bring them to their attention. Do you follow what I just told you, Brendan? Yeah. And uh, so it's meaningless. I just get a kick out of it. I'm still going to go to those Bulls games, ladies and gentlemen. I love the Bulls and love the good life. All right. Speaking of sports, uh, one final shout out, George Atkins. May you rest in peace. Now I regret that I uh, I didn't get to meet the guy, Brendan, after hearing your riff. Sounds like a, uh, a really cool guy to know and to talk to and just, you know, share thoughts. Yeah, he, he's, he was a great guy. He had a huge impact, and not too many people can get um, Mark Kaplan, Paul Siegel, uh, Karen Zakor, and J.B. Prisker and uh, Michael Madigan all in the same room praising them. No. Did Madigan talk? At their- no. J.B. Pritzker gave a funny story. Um, Madigan did not talk. I don't think Madigan would talk. I'm stunned that I heard that he came out. He's been kind of really keeping a low profile since uh, the indictment, since he left office. And the fact that he came to the memorial service, uh, Atkins, George must have done some uh, serious work for her, the Democratic Party, uh, lower level, probably judicial camp campaigns is uh, my guess is yeah. reproved his value. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, all right. Uh, we mentioned sports. Let's move on. Uh, an obsession of mine that I've talked about on the mic a few times this week is the shooting at White Sox Park. Uh, and I uh, I said to Brennan when I <clears throat> brought him on the show, I go, let's talk about this. And, and I'm going to send you the latest article. So, Tommy, again, Tommy Shuba, another shout out. Great job. Tom Shuba, a Sun-Times reporter. So last Friday, just to repeat uh, the details if you didn't miss them, last Friday uh, there was a shooting at White Sox Park. And here we are almost a full week later, and the police, the White Sox, <laughs> nobody knows, like, where the bullet came from. Uh, forget who shot it. That Nobody, nobody knows that. Did it, we're not even sure that the bullet was the, the shooting inside the stadium, or was it actually a shot fired from outside the stadium? Uh, two people were wounded. One woman was... Um, uh, wounded in the leg. She was bleeding uh, considerably. Another w- uh, woman had a sort of a flesh wound. Uh, a bullet was uncovered, a flesh wound on her stomach. A bullet was uh, uncovered. It was discovered, I should say. Uh, and that is pretty much all we know. It took place in the uh, bleachers at White Sox Park. And I'm sitting here, Brendan, a week later thinking, how could you not know more? I mean, there's cameras everywhere in the world today. And I do not understand how this could be such a mystery. They don't even know if the bullet was shot from outside the stadium, ladies and gentlemen. They're still struggling with that. That's like, how can you not know where the bullet was fired from? And how could it be shot from outside the stadium anyway? It's like there's a stadium wall. And just the trajectory of the bullet would tell you, did it come up and then down? So I, I find this baffling. And so I turned things over. I sent the relevant article to you, and you immediately had a theory that I had never thought of and caught me off guard. So take it away, Brendan Schiller. Well, let me just say that my theory is based on my default from growing up, many experiences growing up and living in Uptown from half a dozen years as a reporter for um, alternative media that focused on police issues. And then for more than 12 for 20 years as a criminal defense and civil rights attorney. And it's very simply this, the default is when something obvious is not being resolved by police, it's usually either because 
there's police involved or there's somebody very powerful involved and they're protecting their interests. And so um, I think it's, I think the most obvious uh, analysis regarding the White Sox stuff after I read the article and talked to you is that there was either a cop or an off-duty cop who likely has some relationships to the White Sox and that um, fired the gun and or accidentally, most likely. And it's neither in the self-interest of the police or the White Sox to have that resolved. Um, it's the only explanation for, it's the best explanation for how the gun got in the stadium. And it's the best explanation for uh, why both neither the White Sox nor the police seem that concerned. Um, you know, the other default is there's three levels of policing, right? There is the level of policing when neither police nor powerful people are victims. And that's the default level of policing that there's a level of disinterest. We may or may not get back to you. That's the default level of policing. There's the level of policing when police or powerful people are victims. And that's when you get the very high intensity stuff gets resolved almost immediately, goes to goes to um, the courts, there's high sentencing. And then there's the level of policing when neither powerful people or police are victims, but powerful people or police either were involved or related or could have, could be harmed if it's resolved. And that's the level of policing where, where things slow down a whole lot. And I think that's the level of policing we're seeing on this. And you can almost always determine who the victims are and who the perpetrators are based on the level of policing you're seeing. Wow. Uh, so that is just your uh, gut level feeling. Obviously, it's not you, you don't have access to uh, I have any. No, yeah. Yeah. I have no information, but I it's more it's more it's more than 50 percent in my mind. True. So I would be willing to bet, although we'll probably never find out, because if it's an off duty cop or an on duty cop or somebody working for the White Sox, they all have a self-interest in making sure we never find out. Well, OK, that's where. Um, wow. I'll push back a little bit because I absolutely believe it's in the White Sox self-interest uh, to, to figure this out and get the information out uh, because there's just a safety issue involved and there's a perception issue involved. And the notion that you can go to a baseball game, uh, there's security that before you get into the baseball game. So you got to go through uh, metal detectors. They wind you down. You know, force you to open your purse. I've I've had to go because I had like my I forgot my keys in my my pocket or something. I had to go through it twice. You know, I had my hands in the air. And they, so, in other words, it's like I'm not hating on that. That's where we are as a society right now. That's just an accepted fact of life. So the notion that you could still go through all that and somebody has a gun is a scary notion and needs to be addressed, uh, I think. And yeah, I would think the, the White Sox would think that. Go ahead. Sure, on the surface, but like every big entity, corporate and most governments, they get some very bad advice from lawyers, which is overly defensive, um, unnecessarily conspiratorial, and they're being told you have much more liability <laughs> if it... If, if it turns out it's an employee or, or somebody who you uh, let in through the back door because they're an off-duty cop or an on-duty cop or, or any of that. Again, this is all speculation on my right. part. Yes. Um, this is all speculation on my part, but I, I believe that they would, they would, based on what advice they're getting, judge that the harm and liability is greater if it comes out that somebody they either let in or was working for them um, uh, did it then if, if then if, that it would then the value they get from assuring everybody oh our metal detectors work yeah uh okay so i'll repeat this he uh brendan just said it this is all speculation all conjecture we don't know and we're doing this in the absence of knowing that's what happens when you don't know uh and then the other thing is well don't talk about it if you don't know don't talk about it like well it happened <laughs> You know, I got well, here's here's what I do know. And I told you this before. In my experience, there's general the default from the police is indifference when the victims and the perpetrators have nothing to do with police, nothing to do with power. 
On the other hand, I have seen firsthand when the victim is police or people in power, there is, or, or affects the values of the police, such as Jesse Smollett, there is huge, massive movement of resources and people to solve a problem. I, the very last criminal trial I did before I came out here was um, a federal criminal trial on a, um, on a carjacking involving one of these young crews that, that carjacked, that had carjacked multiple people before. They were never found and determined, but the, they made the mistake. The very last carjacking they did was an off-duty cop in Edgewater. That case was solved within a day. They found the kids. They did. There's massive movement when the victims... Um, are, are people of power or cops. And then there's, and like I said, there's massive slowdown and non-movement when anybody related is either in power or a police officer. And I just, we know that it's a fact. There's, there's numerous examples, right? The Mezhanowskis of the world, the, the SOS folks of the world, the Watts of the world, they continue, they were allowed to rape and pillage, not, not rape, but in some cases rape, to pillage and thieve for years and years and years because their friends put their head in the sand until it became too harmful. We know that, that that's the, the default in, in, the, in a large percentage of the time when there's unresolved crimes. Um, it's because police are involved in some way. Well, we're watching, uh, and um, I'm very curious how this gets resolved. Uh, and... Uh, I'm I'm not sure I buy the Brendan Schiller theory. I, it my eyes popped open and go whoa, hadn't thought of that. So I give you a lot of credit for getting me to think of it that way, uh, and uh, I'm just really interested uh, to see how this gets resolved. All right, let's move on to uh, the next topic: the uh, Donald Trump and his uh, uh, his many. Uh, uh, what is it now? Four different indictments, four different venues uh, that he's facing um, prosecution in, uh, and one in Georgia. And last week he was uh, officially arrested, I guess, and uh, he had mugshot. And uh, the response to the mugshot is very interesting, uh, Brendan. And I just have to share this with you and get your thoughts. And then I tell you, I was going to be reading this quote. I saved it because I wanted to just get your raw, fresh thoughts on this. So this comes from Dinesh D'Souza. I don't know if you know who he is. He's an extreme far right. Um, he was MAGA before MAGA, commentator, uh, agitator, propagandist, uh, etc. And um, so Donald Trump uh, obviously uh, had thought through very much what his mugshot would look like. So he had that scowl. Uh, and now he's using that uh, mugshot uh, as I said, I, we all knew he would uh, to raise money selling T-shirts and coffee mugs, et cetera, and so forth with the mugshot uh, blazing on it. Uh, and here's what Dinesh D'Souza uh, tweeted out in the aftermath of the uh, mugshot. In the urban black community, a mugshot can be an iconic symbol, both of victimization and of greatness. It's a defiant up yours to the man. Think Tupac Shakur. Trump is now the ultimate gangsta, spelled G-A-N-G-S-T-A, in our culture. I had many thoughts about this. I'd I don't love know, to hear you. I don't know. How many different ways can you be racist, man? <laughs> what the fuck? Excuse me. Oh, my God. How many different ways? Did you, like, he hit every different way to be racist in that one quote. That's nuts. I don't know what else to say. That's nuts. It's break it down, break it down for the listeners, uh, all the different ways. Uh, you want me to do it sentence by sentence for you, and then sure. you can do an analysis like we're back in high school? Uh, uh, sure, in your, yeah, go ahead. In the opening, in the urban black community, a mugshot could be an iconic symbol, both of victimization of greatness. Any thoughts on that sentence? Um, so first off, uh urban black community there is used to imply that the uh, majority or large portion of the vast portion of black folks in cities and metropolitan areas are living in poor or outside of the mainstream. And that's just factually incorrect, right? Um, you know, despite despite 400 years of, of slavery and Jim Crow and, and 
mass incarceration. The reality is, is that the vast majority of black folks in any setting um, are, uh, are not impoverished, um, are not living outside the mainstream. Uh, and, um, and in fact, when we look at, uh, you know, cultural measurements of stability, like uh, fathers in the household, um, uh, like activity with youth, um, all those things, there's a white supremacist presumption that, that black folks have, have less of that stability when reality, the truth is, is that all those measures, when you look at Pew studies and Quinnipiac studies, is that black families are more likely to be together, black fathers are more likely to participate in their children's uh, life. All these things, despite mass incarceration and despite economic inequality, um, and so there's just a bunch of projections of white supremacy that are just factually incorrect in, in that first sentence. All right. And the second sentence, it's a defiant up yours and those all caps to the man. Yeah. So, you know, the Republicans have done a very good job of flipping who the man is. You can't be any more the man than a acclaimed billionaire who is the president of the United States um, who can get four indictments and not even have a have bail uh, money set on you, and, or I guess he had one in Georgia, um, and, and never spend more than 20, 19 minutes in a jail. You are no more, he is the man. There's nothing the man can do that is an up yours to the man. And the, um, you know, this is, this is a tactic, uh, you know, rich white folks are in so much power and they lose a dollar or they lose a, a cent of power and they're aggrieved, right? They can't even have their children in Florida hear about how black folks are oppressed. But in Houston, they can take over the school system and close down all of the libraries for black kids. They can't even hear in Florida about um, anything having to do with, with mass incarceration and the inequality as it relates to black folks. But you can have black folks getting shot by the people that they fire up in Jacksonville, right? And, and, and somehow they're not the man if they lose one-tenth of one percent of a hundred of them being the man. Um, it, it's such a perversion of reality. That is a great take. Think Tupac Shakur. Trump is now the ultimate gangsta in our culture. Yes. White people with power and money are the ultimate gangsters. Now, folks with that power like to use the term gangster and thug and label people without power and without money and resources that as a way to dehumanize them. But yes, the biggest gangsters have always been white folks with power and money. And yes, Trump is the ultimate gangster, but that is not in the same way that Dinesh D'Souza means when he thinks that somehow being um, a gangster or a thug is synonymous with black men and that's somehow celebrated in communities. That is a pure projection of his own fetish, fetishizing of black men. That, and, and, and he just really does not understand the truth of what he just said. Yeah. And Tupac Shakur um, was not a gangster, he was a rapper. And he was an artist, and he um, uh, unfortunately had whatever other uh, ails that come with being an intelligent, conscious black man in this country, understanding the uh, inequality. But he was an artist, and Donald Trump is a gangster. Uh, and uh, I think you would spell gangster in that case, G-A-N-G-S-T-E-R. Um well, the reason I raise this uh, in a turn of the criminal defense uh, element is that I believe the heart of what uh, the theme is uh, coming out of this tweet is sort of what the essence of what Donald Trump's defense is. And uh, so I think of his defense strategy that the lawyers are shaping or getting ready and the public relations strategy, which are they're tied together. And that is that somehow or other Donald Trump uh, is a victim. He's a political prisoner. 
Uh, he is being punished for his political views. Uh, and uh, this is unfair and unjust and un-American. Uh, and I've heard him compared to everybody from, well, it's not America, but Nelson Mandela uh, to Martin Luther King. I'm just like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what Donald Trump has a really good understanding of and has always had a really good understanding of is power and power dynamics and understanding that ultimately um, power shifts and powers both based on brute, brute force, but uh, social agreements. And if you can shift the social agreements, you can shift power. And if you can shift the social agreements, you can shift the range of times you can use brute force to enforce your power. And what Donald Trump is 100% most concerned about is power. And he understands that even in the legal system, the legal system is a political, uh, a political animal. And how the legal system works and operates is based on people's power, both in the courtroom and then larger from a med perspective, how the courtroom is shift and how the, the people who operate in the courtroom, how they their perspectives. And so Donald Trump is simply trying to change the dynamics in the larger world that will affect both the social agreements in the courtroom and give him a larger range of options if, if possible in terms of violence and other activities to change the power dynamic. And so if, if he can change enough perspective that gives him a route for a Supreme Court to give him, get him off, or if he can change enough perspectives that gives him a route to electoral victory to, to end the, the legal jeopardy, or if he can change the perspectives enough to give him a route to complete the, the coup he tried in 2020 and 2024, um, he will do that. You know, we know at the very same, it's a matter of public knowledge, at the very same time that he's doing this, they've approached every single black DJ, radio DJ, every single black rapper, everybody they could um, with goo gobs of money. Uh, and so that represents both this, this projection of white supremacy that's completely inverse from reality that, that was in the D'Souza um, tweet, but also a very concerted, calculated strategy to, to stretch the bounds of social agreement that undergird both our politics and our legal system to grant, to grant as much power to, to Trump as possible. Listen, if, if a judge, Diane Cannon, says screw you to the legal system, that's not going to work in most times, but that's only if the vast majority of people support the legal system. If there is a complete undermining of the confidence in the legal system, then that will work. And a Supreme Court will say, okay, you're right. This Supreme Court in particular. Um, so Donald Trump, more than most, um, has a really acute understanding of power, shifting power dynamics and how to move them and the various pressures you can create um, to change the social agreements, both in the political and the legal system. I did not know that he was approaching rappers. I, I did not know that. It's a matter of, I mean, it hasn't, I don't know if it's been stated, but if you re read between the lines, he approached Ice Cube, he approached Ice T, he, he's approaching all sorts of rappers of both, of all generations, offering them money. I mean, you know, he's approaching people as low level as Ed Lover, who's on a low um, listenership, syndicated for you know a couple dozen radio stations in metropolitan areas and lover said it a, f uh, a few days ago he's approaching I'm, I'm i don't know for you know how i just going based on what's in the public sphere but you can infer from that he's probably approached every syndicated black dj who's across the country in major metropolitan areas and he'd have probably approached every um black rap artist and just throw money at them I mean, who knows what he offered Kanye initially a few years ago? You know, Kanye was had some particularly acute mental health issues and was probably more approachable than most. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is part, their strategy is to alter people's perspective in society and the culture at large to a sufficient extent that you can change the societal agreements that undergird politics and the legal system so you can change how power works in those places. Wow, pretty deep. And uh, so I just want to uh, close by uh, reminding everybody 
the essential element of the attempted coup was to accuse the Democrats and Biden of corruption, uh, to accuse them of stealing votes. Uh, and their remedy was to throw out the votes that came from Milwaukee, Detroit, Philadelphia, and Atlanta. And if you throw out those votes, then Wisconsin goes from Biden to Trump. Michigan goes from Biden to Trump. Pennsylvania goes from Biden to Trump. Georgia goes from Biden to Trump. And so if you essentially discard black votes, if you throw them away uh, uh, with unproven allegations of, of malfeasance, then Donald Trump will have successfully, quote unquote, won an election that he actually lost. And so it's beyond ironic that he's trying to appeal to Tupac Shakur fans that he is somehow an outlaw like Tupac. Go ahead, Brett. I see you. Yeah, no, that's not irony. That's a really calculated um, strategy. Um, it's a calculated strategy with the understanding of if you get just a few black voices to validate your next coup, it doesn't look nearly as racist as it is. That's all it is. It's a calculated strategy. Yeah. They understand power. They understand how you move power. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a calculated strategy. Yeah, well, um, I don't think it's going to work, but it's well worth pointing out. You know what I'm saying, Brendan, to show what, the, what he's up to. I think it's it's a very interesting dynamic. I, I really don't know how the next couple of years are going to play out. It's so, you know, you cannot separate from the fact that this is the third cycle in a row he's running, that since 2015, he has, that Trump, he being Trump, and his people have um, encouraged and um, helped along and exacerbated um, the worst in people in such a large portion and has pushed white supremacy uh, farther than it has been in my lifetime. Um, and it is, it is so frustrating and you can't separate that from, um, I think, the mass kind of mental health issue that, that I feel all sorts of people I know are going through. I mean, I, you know, we blamed a lot of it on COVID and I, I'm sure COVID exacerbated it, but we are now going into uh, what will be our eighth year of absolute concerted white supremacy and meanness and vitriol uh, um, amongst damn near majority of our population encouraged by this man and his people. And it is, it is um, very disheartening and, and disgusting and, and, and hard to deal with. Yeah. At least for me. Uh, so, folks, just keep that in mind. Don't fall for it. <laughs> Don't fall for, for this. This. Uh, I I do know that. Um, I I know what Trump's up to uh, in terms of black vote, and I know what he's up to in terms of the white vote. Uh, so you get white people feel like they're the victims, uh, and they uh, vote for Trump because they think. Uh, Black people are getting something that um, they don't deserve. Uh, and then you you just encourage black people not to vote at all with the sense that uh, both sides are equally bad. And uh, every any per black person that votes for Trump is a huge victory. And any per black person who doesn't vote at all is a victory. Not as huge, but it's a victory. And that's the strategy. Uh, uh, Brendan, and I'd love to. I wish George Atkins were around uh, on the front lines to tie everything together to fight it. Uh, he he figured out a strategy to fight the Chicago machine. It's like you're going to need smart people and yep. disciplined people. Do you follow me yep. uh, to fight this particular strategy? So there's got to be another generation of a George Atkins out there. I'll allow you to have your final thoughts before we break for the, the show. Well, I think that generation's out there and been out there. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I grew up and was raised by, by 
uh, Mark and, and George and, and Helen and Slim and Uptown. And I think what they did is great, but I don't think, I don't think you can deny what UWF did under Emma Tai and now under Candy Barley and what C and what CTU's done. And I think the what we see in Chicago um, citywide uh, in the last ten years is has more than multiplied exponentially what what my folks did in Uptown. So I think you have it. And I don't, not only do you have it, but you you're in the center of it. You're in the heart of it. And and I'm really hopeful for what they're going to produce. Very good. We'll leave it at that. A little hopefulness at the end of a very bleak segment uh, about what Donald Trump is up to and uh, whether it can succeed or not. Uh, Brenda, I'm going to let you go back to the card table. You have more pressing issues to face. How, how is your card game going these days? You, you're strong? No. So honestly, after the real rough summer, I've taken most of the last two months off. I haven't played a lot, in, in part because I've actually been doing a lot of work back in Chicago um, on some cannabis stuff and helping to get some folks stood up. But uh, the, the I will I will be spending a lot more time October, November, and December at the card table, and I will update you when I'm there. Very good. I'm living vicariously through his uh, poker playing, ladies and gentlemen. As everybody knows, I'm a reformed gambler. Uh, but I'm rooting him on. I'm rooting Brendan Schiller on. I hope he wins that World Series of Poker, and we'll all celebrate. Uh, and then he'll like when he once he wins that, ladies and gentlemen, he will fund the Ben Jarofsky show. I will be. <laughs> yeah, no, so once I win it, it will be um, it will be drugs, hoes, movement, and Ben Jarofsky. That's the priority. That's the priority of the money. You got it. Okay, I take that. All right, thank you very much, Brendan. Appreciate it as always. Good stuff. And I also want to thank producer Chris doing an outstanding job as he always does. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Take care, everybody. And as always, if you missed any previous Ben Jarofsky shows or you want to catch up on Benny J bonus interviews, just head to chicagoreader.com. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram at Benny J show and like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.